Hello, and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Geo George to discuss the democratization of AI and data science. Geo is a director and co founder of Mayfly Accelerator, a company that helps founders build, grow, and scale disruptive startups. He is also a startup founder in his own right and in a previous life worked as an executive in the government sector with a focus on strategy and risk management. Geo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Genevieve. Really excited to be having this discussion with you. Great topic, very contemporary, and yeah, it should be a fun chat. Once upon a time, to be a data scientist also meant you needed to develop programming skills to rival those of a software engineer. This limited the abilities of those without programming skills to make use of AI and data science. However, recently this has changed with a huge number of no-code and low-code tools entering the market, many of which are the products of startups, but startups are also leading the way in leveraging these tools and in the process helping to make AI and data science available to all. Geo, you yourself are a member of the startup community and you also work closely with startup founders and help them to use these tools to get their own products off the ground. However, you yourself aren't a software developer. When we first met, you were actually working in a risk advisory role. Although, granted, even back then, you were definitely very interested in data and technology. But before we get too far into today's topic, can you tell us a bit about your career journey from risk advisor to where you are today? So th this is going to be a bit of a windy, twisty path. Because uh, <laughs> even thinking back on my own career journey, you know, there's, there's not a lot that makes sense. It's only when you look back and reflect, you can kind of connect those dots that weren't quite apparent at that time. So yeah, Jen, you know, we met at government insurance organization. Yeah, yeah that's as, as exciting as it sounds, but, but it, it, it genuinely was a great place. And I, I very much enjoyed that role, providing advisory services to, to clients, a lot of clients in the healthcare space, education space. And that was kind of my first introduction to like serious data science and watching some of the very cool stuff that you and your team do. And I remember at that time thinking, you know, wow, this is all so cool, but how do I even get started, you know, doing something like this? And I wouldn't have thought, back then that the, these kind of tools and techniques that yourself and, and, the, and the people who are da data scientists were using would become accessible to me. Well, since then, I've, I've done a bunch of things. I had a, an amazing time in the state government sector, you know, working across economic development, healthcare, government services, portfolios. You know, loved my time there. I even had the opportunity to be part of the COVID response program that the Victorian government initiated to COVID-19. It was a time that was marked by playing in very large spaces, thinking about policy across a number of different sectors, thinking about implementing strategy you know, at, at a very large scale, working with very diverse stakeholders to come up with solutions to really, really hard problems. At some point, there was an itch in me where I longed for my startup days back when I was at uni. And when the opportunity ar arose to join a venture capital firm, 
I jumped at it and I, and I took that on. So that was kind of my path back towards the startup space. I've, throughout my time in government, I've always been, I've still been involved in startups and having an entrepreneurial mindset. I try to harness as much of that and put that back into the, the government space. I, I ran a couple of startup toolkit workshops uh, within government. And it was all great, but it was awesome to be fully immersed back into that startup space working at that VC firm. And after a while, I, I wanted to do a little bit more hands-on and perhaps have that experience of building a startup again. So that's when I started Mayfly Accelerator with my co-founder, Joe Young. Yeah. And what can I say? It's been great. You know, we, and I promise this is the only plug that I'm going to provide for Mayfly, but we work with really awesome founders right from Ignition you know, where they have an idea through to launch and scale where they want to grow and you know, potentially exit their businesses as well. So we follow what's called the venture studio model. So we help startups to build really innovative technology products. We help them market and get traction on those products. And we provide investment to scale and grow their tech startups as well. So we work across the spectrum of startups life cycle. So yeah, we get to be super hands-on and so at the same time, have a bit of variety in the kind of startups and, you know, startup founders that we work with. So yeah, hopefully that gives you an idea of my journey from risk advisor to startup advisor. One thing I've got to ask you, uh, do you program? So when we met, no, but now, yeah, just because of necessity and, and yeah. you know, interest, I do do a bit of programming. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a whiz programmer, but, you know, I could work my way around but a JavaScript, HTML, and now, you know, the latest it framework is Dart, so Flutter. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but yeah. Haven't heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking there was no way you could have gotten this far without having at least some programming skills. Yeah, and, and it certainly helps to have a deeper understanding of, you know, some of the t- tools and technologies that we work with. So at Mayfly, we've got a team of developers that primarily use a lot of no-code and low-code tools to, to maintain speed of iteration and, and product velocity. But sometimes, you know, you do have to expand your capabilities with code and, you know, and, and it's, it's fun to kind of get deeper into the tech stack. So, yeah. <laughs> it never really surprised me that you ended up in the startup and tech space, given all the conversations we have back when we first met. Yeah. What surprised me was that you didn't start in the tech space to begin with. I mean, you, you have a commerce degree, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it started off studying actuarial science, realized very quickly, yeah, I, you know, I, I realized it wasn't for me very quickly. So my only other kind of alternative to kind of maintain those credits at university was, you know, to, to pick up uh, economics and finance as a major. So uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up with a commerce degree. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I find this hilarious because that means that you and I both had the same educational foundations. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, and, so this is what, what what I mean about the idiosyncratic nature of, of life. You know, there's there's all these kind of things that happen where two people can start off from, you know, the, the same starting point, but end up in completely different spaces. But, you know, g- g- given that we've naturally overlapped <laughs> and, and connected again, you know, maybe, maybe we're not at that different places, you know, now. <laughs> yeah. Do you think your business background has helped you get where you are today? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the foundational skills have, have certainly helped. There, there are just the basics that, that you kind of need to know. But I, I do think a large part is 
all of the skills that I've acquired on the job, so to speak, like in my career, a, a, a lot of the the key skill sets is just around people, managing people, hmm. managing stakeholders, trying to sell a vision, an idea, uh, a product. So while the, the, the business background did help, you know, how I utilized it and sort of the additional skills that I've picked up along the way that, you know, helped me the most, I would say. One thing I found from my own experiences even though I'm quite happy to have moved on from the insurance sector, I think it's a really good sector to start out doing data science in because it's a mature application of data science. This is an industry where people have figured out how to use data science in order to add value. And with a lot of other sectors, they haven't figured that out yet. So being able to see the insurance sector as a best case use case is a really good way of forming a prototype in your brain that you can then apply to other sectors? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the applications of data science in an insurance landscape is so much more tangible than like data science to traffic management or something, something like that, you know? Like, yeah. Because there's a very direct correlation between how well you interpret and understand the data to mm. your bottom line when you're in an insurance space. I think it was some of the work that, that you and your team did that, that really piqued my interest in data science and data analytics, watching how you can translate noise. Uh, a lot of the, the claims data that, that you work with, as you know, like can be quite noisy, but taking that noise and getting insights from it, it it's almost like magic, you know? And, and certainly like when you don't have a fine appreciation of the, some of the tools and techniques that you use, it, it does seem like magic how you could take all of that noise and data and then get useful insights that, that could be put back into providing better services or preventative programs in the healthcare space that directly save lives. It, it, it is a great space to start out in if you've got an interest in, in data science. Agreed. Do you reckon if you could go back in time, you'd have taken a more tech-centric path right from the beginning? You know, I've, quite, I've, I've thought about that quite often. Perhaps... I didn't mention this at the start, Jen, but I did, right before VMI, I did have a couple of tech students. So I, I had my own startup, you know, venture from the startup and learned a couple of hard lessons that way. <laughs> I had a bit of an exit, but it wasn't anything, obviously, to, you know, to retire or, or anything like that. And I worked at another startup. And w- one of the reasons why I joined VMI was because I wanted to do something completely different. I had gotten a taste of the startup world and yeah, there's there's a lot of advantages to it, but if you're just starting out your career and you're itching for something a bit more large scale, working in a startup environment gives you a lot of variety, but it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily give you scale. Or if if the startup obviously does well and and it scales yeah. naturally, you could you could grow with it. So I've thought about this uh, quite a bit, and and I don't think I would change anything. I'm happy with the opportunities that I was given, you know, at VMIA and you know, working in state government. So I got. A mix of both the agility of what startup life is like and the scale of working in state government, you know, which oftentimes when you're, you're talking about strategy and policy, you're, you're considering a vast stakeholder group, which, you know, you just can't get that from a startup environment. On that note, let's move on to the topic of today, which is the democratization of AI and data science. And this is actually a topic that you suggested, Geo. In suggesting this topic, one of the comments you made was that you'd seen a lot of startups facilitating this democratization. 
Now, before we go on, just to make sure you and I are on the same page and our listeners are on the same page, what exactly do you mean by democratisation? So before before we started this episode, we naturally had a conversation about how AI and, and data science has become like popular vernacular now. You know, obviously ChatGPT and, and some of the you know use cases that's that's demonstrated has has helped in that way. But you don't have to be in a super tech-centric role to have some sort of a, a run-in with AI and, and data science. It could be you leveraging some of the benefits of these technologies, or it could be you're, you're directly working with some of these technologies. If you think back 10 years, the types of people that were utilizing and, and interacting with these, with these tools and technologies, is, it was just mainly related to you know people like yourself you've got a background in data science you work in the in the space but certainly not people like myself who, who've got a non-technical background you know people who are interested in building businesses people who are interested in optimizing their businesses and you know they might be a small business owner but you know have a have a rich collection of data from product reviews or people sending through feedback or traffic flows Nowadays, these tools are so accessible that literally anyone you can pick them up and, and use it. You know, ranging from small business owners to educators, even to optimize your own life. One trend that I'm seeing is sort of this hyper-rich data gathering of personal health data. You know, I've I've got an Apple Watch. People are using different kind of health tracking devices. And it's generating a lot of data. But then we're coming up to same kind of problems that that you might experience, you know, when you're working at a large company where you're generating a lot of data, but all of that is being sort of treated as noise rather than signal. Nowadays, there's, there's tools coming out where you can analyze your own health data and, and optimize your life, not just your business, using some of these tools and, and techniques. What I'm really interested in is, you know, you have all these articles in the newspaper saying how the education sector is freaking out about ChatGPT and how, you know, this will be the death of essays and stuff like that. But I actually came across an article in the newspaper the other day where it was saying the people who run the Open Universities platform, mm. they're incorporating GPT-4 into their platform to help educators use it to create customised assessment tasks for the people who are studying these courses so they can get their courses up and running a lot faster and customize them exactly to what the students are struggling with. So it's two sides of the same coin. You've mm -hmm. got the people who are freaking out, but you've also got the people who are seeing this as an opportunity. And here's the thing about this dialogue that, that we've recently seen play out. You know, if universities are really worried about their course content somehow being subverted or taken advantage of uh, using large language model, then maybe it's a reflection on the the course content itself. I, I do think ChatGPT can do a lot of things, but you know it, it's not going to replace critical thinking and the types of skills that universities should be aiming to teach. You know, just take a, a very simple kind of example, right? So essay writing is, is often something that's, that's mentioned a lot in, in this context. So chat GPT, you know, just writing people's essays for them. Now, universities have access to tools, just like anyone has access to tools that can detect the use of large language models in text content. And, and it detects it with a high degree of accuracy. So then the question becomes, 
Well, if we can detect the use of ChatGPT or large language models in some of the coursework that's been submitted, then it's a policy question. Do we allow for the content generated by large language models and, and coursework? Or do we say it has to be original content that was written by the students? Or do we take a hybrid approach where you leverage some of the new capabilities that, that you get from these large language models and then combine it with your own analysis and your own ability to craft a narrative and a structure to arrive at something that potentially leverages the benefits of your own narration abilities and your own critical thinking abilities, but also the quick access to content and information that you get from large language models like ChatGPT. I think the sweet spot is like, combining the two together rather than you know, having a hard-line approach of one or the other. So yeah, that, that's just my views on it. I think universities can do a lot better when thinking about ChatGPT in the education context. The area where ChatGPT excels is that it is really good at summarising large volumes of data. If you're teaching students to just summarise large volumes of data, the fact is that ChatGPT will always outperform the students. There's no way the students can do better than it. It's just like yeah. a student can't do better than a calculator. They'll make mistakes, the calculator won't. But the thing that ChatGPT can't do is ChatGPT doesn't have experiences of its own. And what I've seen some academics propose, and I really like this idea, is set assignments which give the students experiences in doing something, like writing a computer program to solve some sort of problem, and then ask them to write about their experiences in doing it. You know, what did you learn from this? What were you surprised by with this? What was more difficult than you expected? because that's asking them about their personal experiences, which is something that ChatGPT can never have. Yeah, and, and that's a fantastic kind of you know, way to put it, which is, you're right, a student can't be better than a calculator, just like a student can't be better than a large language model when summarizing large volumes of information. So universities that primarily teach content that's, that's designed to regurgitated and recite large volumes of information, they're naturally going to have a problem with the introduction of ChatGPT and, and LLMs into kind of common use cases. So then it really is about getting more creative about educating students and education focused on experiences rather than just rope learning and regurgitation. I, I think it's, it's, it's almost forcing the education sector to have a real hard think about the, the philosophy of how people educate. And this is a conversation that, that I had with a very good friend of mine recently about the modern education system. It's really designed to turn out cogs in a machine. And if you think about sort of the origins of the modern education system, it dates back to the Victorian era where you know, there was this large empire building it and you needed the empire to operate as a machine and, and it needed replacement cogs and pieces and widgets and units for, for this machine. And, and the education system has evolved to provide for that demand. Now we're going to this new age of knowledge work. And you know, I read a really interesting stat from Deloitte where by 2030, two thirds of all jobs are going to be jobs that are soft skill intensive. So jobs that focus on the human elements of, of working and of, uh, of your skill set. So it's really, an, it's almost, almost an existential issue for, for the education system, which is, do we adapt to this new way of working where we're transitioning from this Victorian era 
system designed to feed widgets and cogs into a machine to something that's more evolved and potentially involves higher level thinking around knowledge work and, and how you facilitate the creating utility and productivity using not rope learning, but creative thinking, creative problem solving, human interactions and soft skills, leveraging your experiences to actually solve problems and create value. So I, I think it's a, it's a super exciting time, but I do think the education space has to kind of evolve to meet the new demands that are being created. Have you read some of the stuff Seth Godin's written about the education system? I've heard some of the stuff, but I haven't read it in detail. He wrote, it was like a 100-page manifesto or, or something. It was basically yeah. saying that uh, pretty much exactly what you just said. So <laughs> it was quite a large piece of work. So I, I've read the cliff notes of it. I could, yeah, I can say that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's worth reading. Yeah. Uh, anything Seth yeah. Godin writes is worth reading. <laughs> yeah. I'll, um, yeah, now, now that I've got it so highly recommend that I'll, uh, I'll make more of a, a point <laughs> yeah. in reading that. So we were talking about these low code and no code tools. And obviously, ChatGPT is the big example. What other tools have you seen people use? Yeah, so Parabola is a great example. It lets you build really cool machine learning models and you know use your own data or use pre-built fine-tuned models to solve a particular need that you might have. It, it might be analyzing website traffic to target certain users to optimize your ad spend, or it might even be you run a dry cleaning company and you want to get more efficient in, in how you manage your you know your workflow, right? So that's a cool tool, but also, you know, a, a lot of stuff like sentiment analysis and thematic analysis, tools that, that were like super inaccessible 10 years ago are, are so accessible. So you've got platforms like Alien, Monkey Learn, also, you know, Google, Microsoft, all the large tech companies have their own solutions for low code machine learning tools. Yeah, like I could, I could go on and on and list a couple of these like uh, companies but if you just do a quick google search no code machine learning you'll get literally hundreds of results so yeah plenty plenty out there what, what i think we're seeing here is exactly what happened with website development maybe 10 or so years ago there was a time when if you wanted a website built it had to be hand coded using html and javascript and whatever and you know, I remember back when I was an undergraduate, we had that as one of our assignments for a business information systems course that I had to do. And mm. you know, I remember spending weeks and weeks hand coding this website and the final product was very average. <laughs> I would be embarrassed <clears throat> for anyone to see it today. And I was really proud of it. I thought this was yeah. fantastic at the time. And it looked oh, yeah. good by those standards. But, you know, now you've got all those tools like Wix and Elementor and yeah. a normal person can build a website in an afternoon without yeah. knowing how to code things. You know, so obviously those software developers that used to hand code websites, they've gone off to do something else further up the value chain. And mm. as a result, the people who are moving into developing websites for people, they're often graphic designers. Mm. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, how do you see this playing out with data science? Where do you reckon the data scientists are going to go and who do you reckon is going to move in to use these tools in their place? That's such a great question because, you know, you're right. Like we have seen this happen to an industry 
like very recently and it's the, the the trends are all the same you know you're you're getting this sort of you know people that are highly skilled in the space going up the value chain and the masses getting access to some of these tools that does like 95% of the use cases you know that that you require to and i do think that unlike what happened with sort of the web 2.0 era where you're you're getting programmers and you know really talented engineers work on even harder computer science type applications this is going to sound a, a little bit left field but bear with me here mm-hmm. so what i think is going to happen in the data science space is people who have those more refined skill set you know and and who study data science and, and have made a career of it they're going to focus on more providing strategic advice around how you implement a good data strategy as an example so it becomes more of that human element of data science where it's it's not necessarily creating tools to collect understand and disseminate data it, it becomes more about that more strategic element of okay what does your data capability look like how do you put in place you know a robust data strategy that gives you the edge in business and i i think the tools are going to become quite common at least the, the caliber of tools that, that i'm seeing nowadays the skill barrier is is low enough that the, the masses kind of are able to access it so then i think that the people who've got those higher value skill set i i i'm going to go more into that kind of strategic role where they're they're talking about how you integrate data science with kind of the human aspects of of business or you know like education or whatever field it is i can imagine it going in two directions i mean there is still going to be a need for people who understand the algorithms and i can imagine them ending up in research and development spaces and someone mm. has to produce the no code and low code tools yeah. but yeah i can also see that there will be that strategic advisory type space on how to make use of these tools and how to understand them another way to kind of think about it is yeah you're right like so- someone's got to be producing these models Right. So, for example, like the new capabilities that the transformer model provided in, you know, how how people use large data sets and and translating that to you know information and and models, um, machine learning models. Like someone's got to be there designing those new type of models, like pushing the frontier. But if you look at the the total population of people who are are using data analytics or or data science as a as a profession, it's going to be a very small handful of people that are, that are like there on on the frontiers of that frontiers of the technology, like producing these these new cutting edge tools and and techniques. I think for the masses of people in the field, it, it's going to either translate into leveraging these tools that that people have created and and uh, applying it and and providing new capabilities to to businesses and organizations, or it's going to be like, okay, well, what is a higher level you know service that we can provide within this realm of data science and and AI? you know it's it's more like okay you've got these tools you've got people who could implement these tools how do we actually go about putting together a cohesive strategy that effectively leverages these technologies to you know improve your business or your organization or whatever it is and this is now coming back to the education space that we were discussing before a lot of the people who were educated in data science their education was solely focused on the whole technical algorithms programming type side 
they haven't had that training in the strategy and advisory type side of things. So it sounds like the degrees are going to have to be completely rewritten in order to accommodate this sort of skill set. Yeah. And, you know, as I said before, like there's a lot of studies these days around how jobs are increasingly demanding a higher level of soft skills. So I think that's going to be a natural evolution of just the modern landscape of work and careers in the, in the Western world. So you're, you're right. I, I, I do think people will either have to upskill themselves in, in soft skills or, you know, naturally have to meet the demands of, of this new way of working. Talking about the intersection of soft skills and AI, I'm just going to give us a, a little plug to a startup that we're working with, Inca, who they've got a, a traditional kind of service-based business where they provide development to large organizations around soft skills and you know, a whole bunch of other uh, skills development as well. But uh, soft skills is, is something that they've been a lot of demand on. Now, they're, they're thinking about how, how do they use a tech platform in combination with machine learning and, and AI to bring that to the masters. So I do think as, as these natural demands kind of get created in modern careers, there's going to be solutions that are going to come out, you know, using equally innovative technologies to kind of address some of those needs, you know, so whether it's teaching soft skills for data scientists or it's like teaching more people how to use some of these machine learning tools, there's going to be new new technologies that kind of service those those needs. And, and we're already seeing that, seeing that happening now. Well, it seems like you've got, it's a bridge being formed from both sides. I mean, you've got startups like that one you just mentioned. Thinker, was that the name? Thinker, yeah. So that's helping people with the technical skills to make it to the soft skill side of the river, so to speak. And then you've got these other startups that are helping the people who might have the soft skills make it to the technical side of the river through the use of these no-code and low-code technologies. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think, what are the new kind of capabilities that we're going to end up with in like five, ten years' time? Like like students who are in high school now, like are, are they leveraging like really advanced, you know, data analytic techniques as, you know, to, to do, do their coursework? Similarly, like, you know, do we have, a seasoned data scientist providing like strategic advice to a Fortune 500 board around how you craft a data strategy that's going to be pivotal to the ad- competitive advantage that their company might have in this ever increasing competitive landscape. You know, so it's 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 a very very exciting time. You're right; it, it is this kind of cross pollination that's happening. Um, it's fantastic. What I find really fascinating, back when I was doing high school and university at my undergraduate degree of university, the standard calculator was your good old Casio FX100 or FX82. Yeah, yeah. And I I would have thought that, you know, given the amount of time that's passed since I was doing high school and and undergraduate university, they would be using some sort of fancy graphing calculator or something in all their exams. But a lot of universities are still using the good old Casio FX82. Yeah. And now that's kind of what we were talking about before. It's, you know, you're, you're seeing these kind of pressures to evolve in the education sector that perhaps you haven't seen before. Like, yeah, I still remember using the FX100, you know, to do my uh, derivatives exam. And, and I just remember like having these equations, you know, to calculate this is very financy, but to calculate delta, which which literally runs across two lines on a page. 
and and you're there, you know, entering these equations in. Now, yeah, that, that kind of makes me think like, why? You know, what, what is that testing out? Is it testing out my ability to use a calculator? Or is it testing out my ability to understanding the mechanics of, of how you derive these calculations? I, I do think now universities are kind of facing this existential threat where it's widely acknowledged that, okay, you're, you're coming right up to that barrier where using a calculator is just not going to cut it. The workforce requirements these days need you to have more than the ability to use a calculator. It, it needs you to use the calculator plus a whole bunch of different tools that you have and adding your own bit of human creativity to produce value. And universities, as I said before, they're either going to have to adapt or you're going to see these new models of education, which are already becoming highly successful, where it's, it's more of that apprenticeship type model. Overtake the monopoly that these universities have had in providing higher education uh, for the workforce. So it's, it's now an environment where it's do or die. I actually like the idea of it becoming an apprenticeship model because as someone with a university degree, I've had the conversation umpteen times with other people from a similar background of why did we spend all this time getting a university degree when all these people who did apprenticeships in plumbing and building and whatever trade are making far more money than any of us are. You know, if you could actually learn how to use these data science and AI type tools in a practical environment, you could probably end up doing far better than if you just learned it in a university type setting. Well, that's an interesting way to think about it because there is a stock out of you that you can't really get away from, which is like there's always going to be need for those higher level skill sets yes. uh, that's you know kind of pushing the frontier, so to speak. But there's also an equally uh, large subset of demand for people who can like take these existing tools and then like implement it, right? So I do think there's a need for kind of both models of education, uh, but it's it's around the degrees to which each model serves the workforce needs. So yeah, if you if you think about like the apprenticeship model, you've got these boot camps. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with kind of coding boot camps. You can see that they're, they're, you know, vastly successful in being able to churn out these like super qualified, capable programmers and developers. Now, traditionally, you would have to do like a four year computer science degree and then perhaps a master's in order to be useful for, for a company that, that's looking for that type of skill set. Now you've got this model where like, you know, there's, there's people who are really interested in that space and, and kind of building those higher level of of skill set don't need to do a basic undergraduate degree and and then a master's to kind of get to the really interesting bits perhaps they could just do an an extended degree where it's like you, you get straight into the thick of developing these higher level skills where it's acknowledged that okay well you you've got access to the same tools that that everyone has and and that's like you know base level of skill set that you already possess let's let's talk about what more interesting things that you could do with these skill sets and like nowadays, you can only get access to that if you're doing a master's degree and, and not necessarily if you're doing an undergraduate degree, which tends to be more generalist. I see it like being uh, the difference between an electrician versus an electrical engineer. If you want to just learn how to, I don't know, rewire a house, you don't need to do an electrical engineering degree. You go and do an apprenticeship in being an electrician. And the fact is the world needs tons of electricians who can wire houses and fix whatever problems they're having with the electricity. Yeah. 
and it would be a waste for the electrical engineers to be doing that work. But the world also needs people who can understand the physics behind how electricity works. And for those people, you need some electrical engineers. Yeah. And, and that is just such a fantastic analogy because you're right. Like if you think about data science being comparable to electricity and being sort of integral to modernizing or, or the continual modernizing of, of our workforce and our workforce capabilities, then like we're, we're having the same kind of constraints that you, that you might have in the 1920s when the world was rapidly electrifying. It's yeah. like right now there's, there's such a demand for data science. And then the traditional university education model just isn't designed to, to plug in those or to fulfill that demand. Yeah. So have your people who are going to do just the hands-on electrician type work using the low-code and no-code tools and doing an apprenticeship and then have another group of people who need to know the university level data science doing the degrees. And yeah, it'd be a much more efficient allocation of resources. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do think you are going to get that. So, you know, I mentioned boot camps before, and nowadays there are, there are boot camps that provide for data science courses. So you've got data science boot camps. Um, I have a, a good friend and a developer that I work with who studied the same same degree as we we met at university, studying finance and and economics, and he's since gone on to do this data science boot camp, and has just become a fantastic analyst or gun python programmer or the machine learning solutions that he came up with it's 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 like you know i wouldn't say it's like as good as uh, a data science but it's it, it kind of gets the job done you know it's like it's it's very useful is what i'm trying to say so yeah there are these models already being implemented which is just it's, it's great to see one thing i'm interested in Things like data science and AI are seen as being the turf of the young generation. So Generation mm. Z and whatever the one, generation is after Generation Z, I've lost track of them all. Yeah, that's the same. <laughs> are the people you're seeing who are working in these spaces members of that younger generation or are you seeing them more spread out across the older generations as well? It's fascinating, actually. Like I, I do see a good bit of variety in, in age groups. Uh, in this space and and I, I feel like data science is one of those space where you do have like lifelong learners you you kind of see all age groups yeah in in this data science space like you've you've got those like really young generations that's kind of getting into data science but you've also got those you know the seasoned data scientists or you know someone who's kind of had a career change into data science once again like it's it's democratic in that way also it's it's accessible to a large cohort of people right through all age groups. I think one of the things we're seeing here with data science is pent-up demand. So I think we're seeing it across all the different age groups because there are people who had this existed when they were going into university would have studied mm. this, but because mm. it didn't exist back then, they're now seeing it and wanting to study it and after a while this will settle down and then it'll just become each generation flowing through yeah potentially uh, yeah you, you know i think you can be right about it like there is a lot of latent kind of demand that's kind of surfacing now and people are naturally kind of stepping in um, because there's opportunity in this space there's, there's a lot of demand for people with good data skills and also there's a there's a whole bunch of content for for you to kind of like 
upskill yourself in that as well. Like, you know, like university content that's posted on YouTube. And while you might not be able to learn everything, you will learn enough to, you know, give you a real leg up in, in kind of starting your journey as a, as a data analyst or, you know, data scientist. Yeah. It's very accessible. Yeah, I think the internet has made the information, has democratised the information. Through my university, I have access to the university library online. And one of the things I have a subscription to is O'Reilly Safari, which is basically a database of every single O'Reilly textbook. And, you know, it's just anything I want to know in data science, there is an O'Reilly book on it. And then I can just go to it and read it for free. That is worth so much. Agreed. And yeah, maybe not a lot of people might know this, but your libraries have provide you access to O'Reilly Safari as well. So, and maybe not all libraries do, but I know uh, my local council library provides you an access to the O'Reilly subscription. There's just so much resources available where it's like, if you, if you really want to learn something, then, you know, you could go out and get it. Like, I, I remember when I was growing up, my father bought me this funk and wangle or something like uh, oh, encyclopedias, yeah. like the old edition too. Like, you know, like I had the full set. So I had like A to Z and, and I remember like if there was anything that I wanted to know and, and this is how I taught myself calculus by reading uh, these encyclopedias. And nowadays it's even more accessible. It's like you've got the super rich interactive encyclopedias for free. You know, <laughs> like a- anyone can access it. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's great. I remember when Encarta was a big deal. Can you remember that? Yeah. Oh, the CDs. Like, yeah, the, CD the CDs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? At the start of our conversation, I was talking about you know, applying AI and, and data science to like personal data, like for example, personal health data. Just like how there's uh, like microservices in the tech space in the big things, they're creating little APIs that serve a, you know, a fairly niche defined solution for a problem. I do think like there's going to be a need or a market for like personalized services to, to analyze like health data, personal finance data. I, I think that could be like an emerging space that, that, that we're seeing a bit of action in, like a, a number of startups that, that we're talking to or, or actively tracking are doing some very cool stuff in the space. It's, it's one of those things where we're all getting comfortable with this knowledge that everything around us is generating data about us. So we should be able to get some rewards from the data that we're generating. And there's going to be a demand for the tools to enable us to generate that that value. So I, th- I think that could be like a an emerging space. I like that idea. Yeah, it, yeah, and as I said, like there's some people doing some very interesting stuff in the space. And now that data science has become such a normalized concept, people aren't questioning like, oh, I don't know, that that sounds too techy for me. People are like, yeah. okay, cool, I could download this app and it's going to help me optimize my mood based on my sleep data, my heart rate data, my blood oxygen level, like, you know, a a lot of these like different parameters, even my like web browsing history, right? And then translate that to like valuable information about some objectives that you might, you might have. The the underlying like driver to this, like we're generating this like vast quantities of data anyway. 
And right now, we're, we're giving that data in exchange for like basic services that we might get from tech companies. But the overwhelming value capture is on the side of the companies harnessing this data. There's very few bits of value that, that the user is getting back on their data. So I, I do think there's, there's going to be better solutions out there that, that help people realize some of this value for themselves. I can just imagine certain things like uh, an app that can monitor your search history, decide that you're spending too much time doom scrolling on news sites and then block you from your news sites until your mood picks up or something. Yeah, that's and that's exactly right. Like, and the thing is, like, some of these models are getting so sophisticated where it's it's almost like a black box. Like, you, yeah. you know, you you're just feeding these vast sets of input into a neural net, and and it's helping you optimize towards some objective. But as to the specific parameters that it's optimizing for, like, you don't really kind of have an understanding of that. But that's that's fine, you know. Like as long as it's helping you achieve your objectives, then it's 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 serving its need. So it's it's cool. <laughs> and what final advice would you give to data scientists who are looking to create business value from data? Having a focus on the soft skills. Like I'm I'm going to keep coming back to the soft skills because the, these tools are becoming so common that it doesn't really provide you an edge to be able to utilize these tools. Like you know, one one way to think about it is like ChatGPT, right? Because it's it's on everyone's mind. You knowing how to use ChatGPT or, or whatever, it's not really going to provide you an edge. But how you utilize it and thinking deeper about like how you put a structure around how you use some of these tools, that's going to create a lot of value in, in an era where everyone has access to the tools, but people might not have access to the know-how or the ability to put together a strategy that leverages these tools effectively. So I think developing like your soft skills, developing your own strategic thinking skills is, is going to be critical into this new age where everyone has access to tools, but people might not have the best idea of how to leverage all of these tools in concert to create additional value. I have a number of friends in the copywriting space, and that's one of the industries where everyone's saying, oh, that's going to be eliminated by ChatGPT. But I don't think these people are going to get eliminated by ChatGPT because they're the people who are embracing ChatGPT and using that to do their jobs even better than they ever did. It's it's the age-old paradigm of, okay, there's, the automatic looms are, are now a thing. Like where everyone's going to lose their job. It's going to be catastrophic for the economy. But what you end up seeing is like, okay, well, automatic looms are a thing, but you need people to build the looms. You need people to like service the looms. You, you need people to teach people how to, how to use the loom. So it's, it's the same kind of paradigm that's playing out now, which is, yeah, you've got this new disruptive technology that perhaps alleviates one bit of mundane, repetitive work. But at the same time, it's also creating new capabilities that you could realize in a lot of different ways. Now, it, it's obviously easy for me to say this because I'm, I'm, I'm not a copywriter or in, in particularly a space where ChatGPT and MLMs really threaten my, my livelihood. But that being said, I wouldn't be worried about it. I think if you're, if you're a lifelong learner and you're open to new ideas and, and new ways of working and, and exploring new tools, then there's plenty of other opportunities that are going to come as a natural consequence of these emerging technologies. And the fact is, we as a human race are a species of survivors. 
People aren't just going to say, oh, uh, artificial intelligence took my job. Now I'll just sit here in the corner and cry. People are going to naturally look for ways to survive and they'll come up with ideas and they'll utilize it and they'll end up doing things better than before. That's that's exactly right. I think there's one thing that human beings are good at is is to adapt, and you know we either adapt in in response to our own intrinsic drivers, or we adapt as a result of necessity. But the reality is, if if we want to survive in this new paradigm of work, then we have to adapt. So on that note, for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? So you could check out our website, mayflyaccelerator.com. We're also recruiting for a number of developer roles for our venture studio. If you're interested in that, please shoot us a message through the website or studio at mayflyaccelerator.com. Or if you're a startup founder who's got an idea for a startup, or if you're a startup founder with an existing startup and wants to grow it and scale it, yeah, reach out to us as well. We're always looking for incredible, disruptive startups to work with. So mofiaxorder.com. And with those roles you're recruiting for, are they Melbourne-based or can they be anywhere? Ideally, if they were Melbourne-based, that would be good. We do. We, we have a, a hybrid work uh, model where two days in the office to promote collaboration. But that being said, you know, we, we do have one developer who's working for us that's currently sailing around the world. And he's got a high-speed Starlink satellite on his boat. And, you know, he's, he's able to <laughs> dial in from the Bahamas or wherever he might be. So we're also opening, open to remote work. But our first preference would be, you know, a location where we can get a bit of office time in as well. Thank you for jo- joining me today, Gio. Thanks, Genevieve. It was a great chat and, and as I felt like so topical and contemporary and it's evolved my own thinking about the space as well. So thank you. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.